Welcome, welcome. I'm Joey Pants. And I'm Danny Pants. Welcome, welcome to No Kidding Me Too. Our new podcast. Our new podcast. To people who we admire and are famous. Yeah, thank God. And we talk about life and how they're dealing with life these days during uh, uh, the COVID and, uh, and how they got to where they got to. Yep. And so today we'll be having our first conversation with our first guest and one of my father's dear friends and someone I admire greatly, the wonderful, the radiant Bodney Hunt. Multi-talented, fun. So fun. Caregiver. Mm. We're going to find out stuff about her that you might not have normally known, which I think is great. And she is the gold standard. I love, right, by the way, this interview is my favorite so far. And uh, she has done so many wonderful things for people you'll never hear about. She's a nurse. She volunteers. She's wonderful. She's someone where you, you talk to and you'll hear her voice and you just feel wrapped up in a hug when she's speaking. She's just marvelous. So for you listeners who might not know Bonnie, those of you have who've been living in caves, because how do you not know the wonderful Bonnie Hunt? She's a comedian, a writer, an actress, director. She used to be a nurse. She's an all-around amazing human. You've seen her in Jumanji, Jerry Maguire. You've heard her in Cars and multiple other Pixar movies. She was in Return to Me. She wrote Return to Me. She directed Return to Me. She can do it all. All. She was also on TV. Yes, that's right. She was in The Grand, in Bonnie, and in The Bonnie Hunt Show, where my dad was a guest multiple times because he's her favorite, or he likes to believe that. She also one of the first promoters of No Kidding Me Too. That's why it made sense that she would be on here with us. We had to talk to her. And we talked to her over Zoom. Mm-hmm. That's how we do it now. Well, she was in Chicago, and Danny was in Hoboken, and Joey was in Connecticut. That's right. Isn't that kind of cool? That's kind of cool. That's that's a cool thing. So you can be with people. Okay, here we go. Let's do it. Here's Bonnie. You're in Chicago? I'm in Chicago. Yeah. Taking care of my mom. We're taking turns with my mom, my siblings and I, because we're trying to keep her safe. Because she's old and she doesn't want the virus. She's determined to get through this and it's so hard. It's so scary. How are you guys doing with everything? You know, for the first four or five months, I was quite content because I've been socially isolating for the last, I don't know, 15 years, March, April, May, Daniela, uh, Marco, his, his wife, Katie, Isabella, Nancy, I, we were all in the house together. So we were isolated and safe and we were taking walks. Daniela found a, a hiking path that's the state park, the state park, 500 yards from our house, 500 yards. We've lived here for 20 years. Oh I didn't know. I didn't know. So we, we were enjoying that until one day while I was waiting to cross the street, I got hit by a car. Oh my God. That was the scariest thing I've ever seen when that I got that message. Me, my boyfriend, and my sister were already across the street, so we just heard the the sound of the crash, and then my mom say, Joey, and we turned around and ran across the street no, to no, you. No, no, Oh, my God. I took my jacket off and applied it to his head wound. Smart it girl. Was, 
And then I didn't talk for 30 minutes because I was traumatized. <laughs> I was going to say, did you have to like talk to somebody about it? <laughs> yeah, I started therapy not yeah, long really, after yeah. that. It is, it is very traumatic. Speaking of trauma, you know, that's the idea of, of this uh, show and this talk is talking about, I mean, you're, you're, you're one of the first friends that that embraced uh, my journey with No Kidding Me Too and you put me on your show and the, so the idea important, is Joe. That work is so important. It's so important. You know, I, I, I just want, I want to be able to have people talk about their diseasiness uh, and how they achieved and regulate and manage their occasional discomfort because so many people see us on a TV screen or in the movies and they think, well, they got everything they wanted. They have no problems. They have no issues. Everybody's happy. Success makes you happy. And they don't understand. And and your case is so interesting because you had a whole career before you had a show business career. Right. And I've always been fascinated by that. And the irony doesn't go unnoticed that you're now care, taking care of your mom. You're, you're nursing her. You're protecting her. Well, you know, it's um, we, I'm lucky to have so many siblings because we're all here and mom's, you know, at the top of her intelligence, she's hilarious and witty, but you know, physically some things are more challenging and she needs assistance with some things as much as she might resent that. But it is interesting to, you know, open up that side of your life where, you know, it was what you were saying, Joe, at the beginning about the first three months you were okay with this. I kind of felt the same freedom. I felt kind of felt like, Oh good. Now I don't need an excuse why don't go places to do things sometimes. And I felt kind of free because of it. But after the three months, it's hard. And when you're talking about people dealing with their dis-ease, for me, that's all, you know, it's always a daily struggle because you, it doesn't just go away. Like you said, success doesn't make you happy. You know, kind of, if anything, fame and, and success kind of reveals some of your darker moments and, and insecurities and almost exaggerates them to a point. Um, certainly that's been my experience. And that's what people say, did the, you know, when did this happen? It's like, it doesn't happen. It's kind of who you are chemically or whatever it is. It's there. Cause I can remember it from childhood, the anxiety or fear or whatever, whatever you call this disease. And the thing when you were, when you started no kidding me too, I, I just remember thinking this is so important because I even remember as a kid, you could see relatives that were struggling and I look back and I go, wow, they didn't have anywhere to go. You know, they either drank or, you know, it was all self-medication in those days and uh, you know, could end in tragedy and, and sadness or in uh, you know, a history of a childhood for certain people and, certain cousins and stuff where you just go, it was really devastating because there was no understanding of the, of this, of a sickness of, of something that makes you feel less than unworthy, scared, uh, desperate, you know, all those feelings. So, uh, I mean, when I was a cancer nurse, it just was a different, it just gave me so much perspective mm. and, and it gave me, um, a freedom to kind of venture out and try this showbiz thing that I wanted to really, I just wanted to be a storyteller most of all, because I saw how healing stories were for people that were, um, you know, facing their own mortality in the most vulnerable time in their life. And um, I could just see them get lost in a story uh, watching something on TV, or I would bring at the time it was VCRs. I would bring VCRs into the hospital and 
you know, rent movies for them to watch. And uh, I could just see how powerful it was for them to escape from their own fears for a moment. So um, it was it was a great combo platter because I was working at Second City at night on the stage and I was at the hospital all day during the day with terminally ill patients. So it was a good balance for me. But yet, even with all that perspective, I still had my own struggles, which seems selfish, but it's true. You were a caretaker. I mean, you, you made a decision to be a nurse. Was that kind of in the realm of Florence Nightingale or it was like a way to make a living and go to Second City at night? No, it was, uh, it was definitely, I was in a car accident when I was 14. And I was in the hospital for a few months after the accident. And I, it was such a, an experience. It was life altering in the sense that I was a teenage girl thinking that everything was ruined and I wouldn't be liked anymore because I have this braces on my legs after the accident, et cetera. But it was the, the nursing care and these nurses that were taking care of me that I thought, oh, you know, this is, that's an important job because they meant so much to me. And that was more the motivating factor. And my dad, my dad really wanted me to go to nursing school. He would tell me, oh, you're a natural. You should be a nurse. It'd be a great job for you. And I said, well, dad, I want to be a, I want to be a writer, a storyteller. And he said, well, what are you going to write about if you haven't lived? You have to have access to your own life experience if you really want to be a great writer. And I was just like, oh, that's a waste of time. You got to get out to Hollywood young, you know. <laughs> and um, so I got into nursing school uh, and I was, 18, I was only about three months in. And at that time, my dad would be mowing the lawn or out in front and his friends would walk by and they'd stop by for a beer and have a cigarette on the front porch. And my dad would say, oh, you know, run inside and put that nursing cap on and come out here. I go, oh, dad, no, please, no. He'd say, no, please, come on, come on, come on out and show the guys, you know, you got the hat on. And I put the cap on, you know, I'm in my sweatshirt and jeans. I throw the student nursing cap on. I come out and he goes, there's my nurse, you know, and he was so proud. And mm -hmm. so about three months into school, um, my dad died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And I was inconsolable. You know, he was kind of a Ralph Cramden in the sense that he always had big dreams and never really got a shot. And he was one of those good guys. Uh, just one of the best guys in the world. Um, there was a time in the city of Chicago where they couldn't pay the guys that worked for the city because the city had run out of money, but they were paying supervisors. And my dad came home at Christmas and seven kids. He said, you know, we're not going to have Christmas this year because I'm not going to get paid. So we'll, you know, everybody, um, that's just the way it's going to be. And we're like, okay, dad, don't worry about it. You know, we're all protecting each other. And after Christmas was over, my mom called my dad at work one day and he didn't answer his phone. One of the other guys did. And he says, oh, Alice, he goes, uh, just on behalf of all the guys here, I just want to thank you and your family and, you know, for Christmas and everything. And my mom said, what? And he said, you know, that Bob got paid and we didn't. And he just uh, divided his paycheck among, amongst us, you know. So that's the kind of stuff my dad did without ever talking about it. So when he was passed away, I was so devastated. I told my mom, she was in all her pain. But I said, I can't go back to school because I can't graduate if dad's not here to see me because it just, mm. I just can't, I can't do it. And she said, okay, um, I understand, you know, uh, but why don't you go one more week and honor dad and then you can quit five days. So we made a deal. And after the funeral was over, I went back to school and it was 500 patients and you get assigned one patient for your practical application and you do theory in the morning. So I get this patient, Mr. O'Brien. And the first thing the supervising nurse does, she takes me out in the hallway and she goes, all right, Hunt. 
you're not the only person whose father ever died. I'm like, oh, this woman's a nurse, you know? And she's like, so you can't be belly aching to anybody. Your job is to be here to take care of other people. And I'm like, this is the most evil woman I've ever met because I'm in so much pain. This woman's like, so knock it off and buck up and you, you know, here's your assignment. She gives me Mr. O'Brien. So I go into Mr. O'Brien's room. Hi, Mr. O'Brien. Uh, my name is Bonnie. I'm going to be your nurse, student, student nurse this week. I'll be with you every morning until, you know, one o'clock. And oh, okay. And um, he said, uh, well, I guess, you know, I'm doomed. And I said, oh, I, I don't know, Mr. O'Brien. He goes, well, I have cancer. And I said, I'm really, I'm, I'm sorry, but I said, I, I believe in miracles. And I'm, I can barely talk because I'm like walking through cement because I'm so sad about my father. And I'm thinking, just make it to Friday and you're out of here to myself. And he said, you know, I feel lucky that I have cancer. And I said, why would you say that? You know, I'm 18, you know. And he said, because I'm Irish and there's a lot that we don't say. And I've been able to tell my boys that I love them. And yeah. my bride of 45 years that I love her. Things I would have never said. And I'm thinking... Oh my God, there's so much I didn't get to say to my dad. And I'm like, he's telling me the story and I'm kind of half listening because I'm so sad. And he said, you know, I had a friend that died really suddenly and he would always say his kids were his greatest accomplishment and he didn't have the chance that I have. And I'm thinking, oh, this is killing me, you know? Mm. And he talked about this man every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, talked, his wife would come and he'd say, my bride is here. And on the third day, um, I've already fallen in love with Mr. O'Brien, but I know I only got two more days left of school and I get to quit. And I'm very excited about it because of my pain that I was in emotionally. And I remember he had cancer and he also had something wrong with his eyes. And I had put a cold compress on his eyes and I was looking through his chart. And I saw on his chart that he had worked for the city of Chicago, the board of education. So I thought, well, I don't know. I'm not supposed to do this, but I closed the door to his room and I said, Mr. O'Brien, I said, I'm not supposed to do this, but can I ask you a question, something personal? And he said, yeah, sure. My Bonnie lasts. He would always call me that. And um, I said, I wonder if you know my dad. Now, I wasn't even talking about my father in past tense yet because he'd only been gone six, seven days. And uh, he said, what's his name? I said, well, he works at the Board of Education. His name's Bob Hunt. And he had the cold compress over his eyes and he reached his hand out and he grabbed my arm and he said, that's the man I've been talking about. Mm. So I didn't leave nursing school because I couldn't leave Mr. O'Brien. I took mm. care of him until he passed away. I felt like he was a connection to my father. And at that point I was very much addicted to the fulfillment of mm. taking care of other people that were in pain because I knew what it felt like. And I wanted to save everyone, you know, just because I didn't want to be to feel what I felt at the loss of my father. Um, but I'm convinced to this day of some kind of divine intervention. Mm -hmm. I look back and I think my dad got to heaven and said, is there anybody we know in that hospital that can stop her before she goes to Hollywood? <laughs> Cause she has to have a life first. So um, that's, that's probably amazingly important. Beautiful. Yeah. I never knew that story. I don't tell it often, but it's, it's important one. I think it's beautiful. That's why when you said you, you you heard that sound and heard your mom yell your dad's voice. And I mean, that's the, in those moments, I know how traumatizing that is, Daniela, especially yeah, with your dad, your dad is a character like my dad. Your dad is bigger than Oh me. yeah. <laughs> I remember you guys as little kids and just your dad and which, which is what makes it even harder for your dad to deal with his, his own demons, you know, just mm -hmm. because to everybody else, 
he was so soothing and so comforting and such a cozy, joyful, blissful, wonderful, hilarious, talented, loving. I mean, I loved him from the minute I said hello to him. And, and it's such a contrast to what somebody's dealing with in their, in their mm-hmm. alone moments. You know? Yeah. They have no idea what a gift they are. They kind of know, but not really. Yeah. It helps to have other people let them know. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the trauma from when he got hit, I just remember not speaking. I, I could not talk. I understand. I could honey. not speak. And everyone else was like, and, and he was, he was speaking and, and I think I knew he'd be okay. And everyone knew and, and they were coping with it. You know, like he's too stubborn to die. Like he's Joey pants. He's going to get hit by a car and then his career's going to go skyrocket and all this stuff. You know, the jokes that you make, right? Yeah, we they do know that he's yeah. going to be okay. But I was just sitting there and thinking, don't just like anything I would say wouldn't be right. And that I didn't like that other people were saying that stuff because I was like, we don't know that. And I, I, know. I have to just sit here and I didn't know how to feel anything or if I was feeling it, I was feeling nothing and everything at the same time. And I had every single person there that I loved most except for my big sister, but my big brother, my little sister, my mom, my boyfriend, my best friend in the world. And I was just like, but he's not here. But that's, yeah, right. Yep, that's your dad. I get it. I get it. Well, your dad's pretty special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sounds like your dad was very special. He was his character. <laughs> They're the best. They're yeah. the best kind. Now, Joey, when you when you wrote Who's Sorry Now, which is still like I still dream about that book and think about so many moments from it. Had you had therapy by the time you wrote that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I started therapy. I was 20. I was 22. Okay. What happened was is my sister quit school. My sister is six years younger than I am. And I was in acting school in New York City. And there was a kid in, in class. Uh, and I, I, I mentioned my, my sister quit school and, and he said, well, you know, I, I'm seeing this therapist, maybe that'd help. And I was telling Danny earlier, you know, that my, you know, my mom loved me conditionally. It wasn't unconditional. <laughs> it was conditionally. And, uh, you know, as long as I, I loved her more than anybody else. So I, I said, Ma, go, you should take Marianne. She comes from the therapist with, uh, with my sister, Marianne. And she's sitting and having a cup of coffee. I said, what did he say? She says, fuck him. <laughs> that son of a bitch. He says that your sister, you, you, all your sister problems are my fault. <laughs> and I was like, like this light bulb. I said, I got to meet this guy. I, I feel the same way. I was telling D- Daniela that we met when you were doing the NBC sitcom. Grand. You were doing grand and I was doing the Finelli boys. And what I remember is all of the places that we would go for the affiliates thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how much fun we had. So so tell Daniela about you used to fascinate me with old time celebrities that you would just look them up in the telephone book, I call did. them up and tell, tell, tell us some of those stories. So, Danielle, when I get to Hollywood, there's something there was a show called Your Show of Shows. And my mom and dad would talk about it all the time. It was Sid Caesar. 
and you know Mel Brooks and I mean gosh all the guys that worked on that show it's like the who's who of Hollywood Carl yeah, Reiner, Allen, Carl Reiner yeah. they were all writers yep Neil Simon Neil Simon and his brother yeah uh and so I get to Hollywood and I I called there was a thing called 411 which was a directory <laughs> service where you can call and get someone's phone number and I called 411 I said I have a phone number to Sid Caesar they were like, what town? I said, the Valley. I mean, I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what anything was. I mean, I was wearing pantyhose in the 110 degree heat because it was December. And I thought, it's winter. I have to wear hose. Um, and I called and asked for Sid Caesar's phone number. And they gave me a number. And I called it. And hello. And it was his familiar voice. And I said, hello, Mr. Caesar. Yes, who is this? I said, my name is Bonnie. I'm an actress. And I just came to town. And you know, I'm a writer. And um, especially interested in comedy and how it touches people. And I think, you know, you understand that. I would love to have lunch with you sometime. I mean, I know it's ridiculous. And I don't really think I'm a scary person. He's like, yeah, sure. And what? yep. Yep. Became friends with him. Met Emma Jean Coco. Um, yeah, it was just, if I could make Sid laugh, I felt like my whole life was worthwhile. And there were times where I really made him laugh and it was a big, big deal. But then I became friends with Carl Reiner, uh, Jonathan Winters played my dad in my first series. My mom was Audrey Meadows. And I took that job over Designing Women. Designing Women was the number one show on television. Mm. Delta Burke was leaving. They offered me more money than I made in a year as a nurse for one week. And, but then I got this other offer that was less than half the money, but it was Jonathan Winters and Audrey Meadows as my parents. And I decided to go with that show. My agent dropped me because they were so horrified by my choice, but I never regretted it. Uh, Audrey and I were friends till the day she died. I learned so much from her about being a lady and being smart and um, try to be in control of your destiny. And, and Jonathan was my dear, dear friend. I mean, talk about Joey, talk about mental struggles. Jonathan had it all. Um, Jonathan and Robin Williams, my bookends, they mm -hmm. both struggled. And I remember when I was getting divorced, I was on the phone with Robin. He said, we should talk, we should call Jonathan. You should let him know. I said, okay. So I crying and Jonathan said to me, my favorite line, he said, well, what do you expect? He's a mere mortal. They don't understand us. <laughs> the most comforting phrase that was given to me during that time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, that's but yeah, all those guys, I got to be friends with Rip Taylor, Jerry Lewis used to come to the tapings of my first sitcom I wrote. I was fascinated by them. They were the soundtrack yeah. of my childhood. And my parents loved movies and storytelling. You know, it was free. Mm -hmm. It was on TV and it was free. My mom would circle movies in the TV guide that were on like 11 o'clock at night. Even on a school night, we'd go to bed. She would wake us up. She'd make a Chef Boyardee pizza. And my brother said every time another kid was born, she'd press harder on the dough. He said, by the time I was born, you could see through the pizza. <laughs> just like, he was just trying to make it bigger. And, um, but she would circle movies and tell us, wait, wait till you see this one. And, you know, just that love of storytelling and music. That was that those were the two things that were free and in the house and we could enjoy them and they became so valuable. How did you like get up the courage to just like call, call him in the book like that for me? Stuff like that, meeting new people or, or talking to someone that I like look up to can be so 
hard to do. And I, I, that fear comes in me and I'm like, I can't, I can't do it. Like, but you did it. How did you do that? I so understand what you're saying. Cause I have those same fears and anxieties about stuff like that. But I think because I was a young nurse and I was like, mm. I worked in an emergency room for a few years and then I became an oncology nurse and seeing people look back at their lives, you mm. know, I didn't even realize how much I was learning at the time, but it gave me kind of this feeling of everything was like, oh, I get to do this. I should take advantage of it. And I should really try to remember everything I'm feeling right now because this time's going to go away. And I don't know how much of it I'm going to be able to get. And so I think when I got to Hollywood, I was like, oh, Sid Caesar, I, I should just try to call him, you know, I mean, what, what could have hurt? And, right. um, and then people with comedy, I always felt like we understand each other. I don't ever think of comedy as separate. I think of comedy as just like this, you know, great tragedy plus time, as they say. And it's, it's um, so I think there's just something really relatable. Like you can kind of trust certain people mm-hmm. that have a certain sensibility of storytelling. Not everyone, but I'm not talking about fame. I was never after like calling somebody who was famous, but calling somebody that I felt like some connection to would mm-hmm. have loved to have met Groucho Marx. Just people that mm. were funny on their feet, but had some kind of razor sharp wit, wit that could be cutting, but then you could see like a heart of gold. It's mm-hmm. always so seductive and uh, it never, it's so timeless. You know, yeah. that's timeless. You got to go for it. You know, we're, t- we're talking about Sid Caesar. We did, Jonathan Winters did the, um, what's the thing that's done at Lincoln Center? The Mark Twain. Uh-huh. Jonathan got that. So I was the only girl and it was me and... Um, Steve Allen, Sid Caesar, I just all, you know, the, all those guys. And I just remember being backstage and looking around the room at these guys. And I think Gary Shanley was there. But I just remember thinking, oh, my God, this room, this is the toughest room we ever be in as a comic. Um, they're not even comics. It's more of a, they're therapists, you know? Yeah. I mean, Sid was deeply, had his demons, you know. I read his autobiography. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I want to do this this talk is because in reading about him, I felt less alone. I, I felt mm-hmm. the connection right. creatively. You know, I, I mean, I didn't have the, the kind of success that he had in, in the beginning. The thing that I that I had to hang my hat on was, you know, that that ability of knowing that many people want this job and that talent you know, that great actors are a dime a dozen. So it's like, how do I get people to root for me in those five right. minutes in that room? Yeah. How do I make a difference? How do I get the agents that have 20 people just like me that they're just going to throw in and see <laughs> and hope that one of the, of the 20 gets booked? How do you make a connection? Because now everything is done with tweeting or emails. Back in the old days, I knew I had a job offer when it was like hold for two agents, like two agents wanted to talk to me, right? right? So then, you know, okay, so you got it. All right, there's this job. Somebody's offering you a job. Now it's just emails. I know. I haven't talked to my agent in probably a year and a half. I know, me neither. I don't even know. I mean, right? just, I get an email. That's how it is now. I just, I mean, he sent me an email the other day. He's like, I don't think you want to fly right now, but you can take this gig. And uh, he said, you know, would you consider if they send a private jet? And I'm like, no, it doesn't matter if there's one person on the plane or 20. Somebody might have it. I'm not going anywhere right now. I'm too afraid. It is a different, it's a different world. It's different. And you don't want to be one of those older people going, ah, you know, it's different. 
you know, it used to be better back then, but there is something to say for the, uh, the connection there was, the, 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 the savvy you had to have, the work you had to do in the room and in the moment. Yeah. Now it's like whenever I'm talking, when I'm producing something or trying to sell something, I'll be at Amazon or Netflix and they always say, I'll say, well, I'm writing this for this person. How many Twitter followers do they have? Do they have uh, any influence? You know, they really, that's a huge factor in them making a decision. Mm-hmm. Do they, does this person come with their audience built in? And it used yeah. to be gut, you know, it used to be a, Brandon Tartikoff did everything based on his gut. He was an audience member. He's like, oh, those people make me laugh. I'm going to hire him. He used to come to Second City and just scoop people up because right. they're funny. He's like, we'll figure something out. Just come out to LA. We're going to find a show for you. It's a whole new world now. Yeah. You know, it's one thing with your meeting Emma Jean Coco and get becoming friends with Sid Caesar. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they had the kind of learning curve that we have to have now. Oh, no. I mean, like I always look at my mom on her iPhone and she's so busy on social media and she's on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm looking at her and thinking she grew up without phones, without television. And look at her. I mean, she's adapted and learned and in the zone. Mm. Well, then Remarkable. it's just me. <laughs> What's really hard is writing stories. Uh, suffer, I think, because of technology. It's very hard to build suspense, mystery, um, misunderstandings, because everything's mm-hmm. so instant, and there's no excuse for not being able to communicate with somebody. So even in writing a love story, it's hard because why wouldn't, why wouldn't the person know where you are? What's the mystery? Why can't they find you? How come they don't know what's going on? There's no, none of those loopholes. To me, it affects storytelling the most. So that's definitely been an adjustment for me as a writer. Um, when I wrote Return to Me back in 2000, I remember thinking I wanted to be timeless. I was worried about the type of cell phone we had because I just remember how small cell phones <laughs> became. At that point, they were so tiny, but they were the flip phones. But remember the giant cell phones as big as your head? That's the first time I, I was in Chicago on Rush Street. First time I ever saw a guy with it. It looked like he had a briefcase with a wire. <laughs> he was carrying this enormous briefcase around. I said, what is that? That's a, that, that's a cell that you can talk on that phone and you don't need a car. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just need a backpack to carry it in. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So technology, I mean, it's changed storytelling for sure. Yeah. I'm writing a show now for, Apple TV that um, is based on this book of these series of books called Amber Brown. Uh, a series of books about a girl and like eight, nine years old. And it was written in the late eighties or early nineties. And now I'm adapting it to this culture and world. And it's amazing how much it's changed for little girls. The Im- you think the image thing would have gotten better, but it's gotten so much more daunting and mm-hmm. tougher. Yeah. The social media thing. Yeah. You don't want to be a nobody calls. They call them. They're still calling cell phones, but nobody's calling me. It's all texting and nobody. I never. I don't answer the phone. I don't talk on the phone. I just. It's all. It's all the written word. Mm -hmm. You're you're right about that. We don't really use them to speak. Yeah, it's. I, I remember a lot of my friends whenever they had to make a phone call, even just talking to a doctor, they'd actually ask me to do it. They they would get so such anxiety having to wow. speak on the phone with someone like i just i just don't like i can't talk on the phone and i'm like How? i have a friend whose son is in therapy for that reason because oh, he wow. doesn't know how to talk he doesn't know how to talk to people and i guess it's not a it's not it's not rare that's like uh the evolution of man you know 
yeah. lose their hair and everything because they don't need it anymore. And lose this because they don't need that. And yeah. And then all of a sudden we're not going to, are we going to need to speak? Who knows? And a lot of people actually think that autism, the autism diagnosis has become so prevalent. It's because of that. There's multiple theories because we don't, we still don't really understand autism. I know. It's like one um, in 60 kids have some form of being on the spectrum. Yeah. But a lot of people think it's because of technology. I mean, we're, we're now bred to be here and not right. here and here. And, you know, you look at some people with autism, they're hyper-focused. They're in, they're honed in. Right. They can't communicate. Um, and it's not surprising because even if you don't have autism, you you can't communicate, even though these things are supposed to help us communicate I better. I know. It's really, no, and you can hide behind Mm -hmm. homework so to speak yeah it's different but i love what you were saying about how it's changed storytelling because i i remember watching i feel i was probably watching some john hughes movie and just being mm -hmm. like they don't make them like this anymore and i thought well that's because they can't they can't because they're not going to stand outside your window with the boom box they're going right. to text you <laughs> i know that's what everybody says oh it, it's like every medium out there are you gonna set it in the 80s or 90s i said sure that's easier because that's when yeah. you can really write a story this is the game has changed so drastically that mm -hmm. I remember dating a guy after my divorce and we were in a car being driven to like a fun, you know, Hollywood function. He was an actor. He is an actor. And he was texting me in the car about how much he didn't like the driver. <laughs> I'm like getting texts from him and we're sitting next to each other speaking yeah. through these phones. Yeah. And I just thought if I were writing the scene now, it would be like that funny. Uh, through the text, but it would have been really funny if he couldn't tell me, but he was trying to let me know. Yeah. That he didn't, yeah, like, you know, yeah. Like all the, the body Whatever, language. Yes. Some kind of cryptic, like code. Uh, cryptic conversation. <laughs> yeah. Clever writing. Yeah. I mean, I, I really want to know if, if you're okay talking about it, working with Robin Williams, what that was like, especially because just the movie itself, Jumanji, is so wonderful and amazing. And Robin Williams was this just this spirit and light and energy. Um, you know, what were your experiences working with him and, and on that film too? Like if you have any amazing fun stories, which I'm sure you do. Well, it was, you know, I mean, Rob and I were friends before the movie. I met him while I was working at second city. He came to do the improv sets a few nights and I was not actually on stage at that time. I was kind of a, one of the gypsies that hung around the theater, theater gypsies that we called ourselves. And um, I was just wanting to be around the energy and the talent. And he was in the bar after the show, after the improvisation. And I was standing there and he went into a character that was looking for his girlfriend who was a waitress there. And I became the waitress he was looking for. And we improvised. And he's like, what's your name? And I said, Bonnie. And um, we talked a little bit. I told him I was a nurse and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that I wanted to be at second city. And then years later, our paths would cross at different parties in Hollywood and we'd make each other laugh or notice that quality about each other. And then all of a sudden I get this script, you know, Jumanji and I'm reading it. I'm like, Oh, this is going to be so much fun. But the, mm -hmm. when we did that movie, the director did not want us to improvise at all. Really? Yeah. And, and it was tough because it feels very wrong for, for comedians like you and Robin Williams. To not yeah, be he was an, you know, he was a, a okay guy and he, you know, he, he was very smart and brilliant and talented, mm -hmm. but he was a special effects type of director. Mm. So it was so many special effects at the time heavy in that film that that's where his concentration and energy went. And then when we would start to alter or change stuff, it would just make him a wreck. Um, but that was, that was really hard for Robin and I, because when mm -hmm. we first saw the film cut together, 
all this hilarity and stuff that we had improvised was not there. And we were really, I think Robin especially was, took it very personally, but no, Robin was my buddy. We were very, very good friends. And, um, Working with him was like, I, I always tell people, you know, I'm one of seven children. I'm number six. So I was born into a team. I don't know what it's like to not hear a bunch of voices all the time, every day. And being with Robin was kind of like that because mm-hmm. he was so many different characters rolled into one, but he was also kind and supportive and never, ever, ever said no to me. Mm. And no matter what it was, family, uh, calling a patient, that I was, you know, when I was, as a volunteer advocate, I would say, Robin, do you mind calling, calling this patient's phone? I'd give them a number and there they were in their room getting a call from Robin Williams. Um, yeah, he was just a good soul. He didn't want to say no. He was probably best at being a friend, probably more than anything in his life. He just understood, you know, it was late night phone calls. He would call 11 o'clock midnight. Those, when he first was gone, I remember that's what I missed so much was that late night phone call as whoever he would call us because he'd always call us different people. Mm. Same with Jonathan Winters. They would always call me and say, hey, it's Billy. You still owe me money. And, uh, <laughs> we met back on 15th Street in 72. And uh, you know, there's always some great things. I mean, when I go to Jonathan's house, I couldn't get in the front gate at his place in Montecito because every time he answered, he was answered as somebody else who didn't want to see me and didn't know who I was. So that would always take about 45 minutes just to get in the gate. Um, but Robin was the same way, just so much fun. Mm-hmm. But he was very kind. And, um, you know, he also had so many emotional things that trapped him even more so just like in his choices of he just couldn't say no. And he mm-hmm. wanted to be liked yeah. and included and accepted. That was a huge thing for him. And then on top of it, he was also dealing with this Louis body dementia, which we didn't know until after he passed away. And when he passed away, the autopsy showed that his entire brain, like every cell was affected by it. The fact that he was even functioning or completing a sentence is a miracle, but he didn't know he had it. He did. He would say to me, something's wrong with my brain, B. He called me B. Something's wrong with my brain, B. Um, but all the symptoms were such an exaggeration of his all his already known personality that he mm. just wasn't something that you would you know ring a bell about and he was dealing with parkinson's and trying to cover it up at the same time um but at the core of who he was there was a real a real kindness just a real mm-hmm. kindness and that's what i loved about him most then yeah. of course he was hilarious robin but that kindness was really important yeah, it shows in all of his movies. You just watch him and you're just in awe. And mm-hmm. you just want you just want to be his friend. We watch these people on the screen and and we don't know their lives. We don't know what they're going through. And you watch someone like Robin Williams or I mean any comedian and you just think, "Oh man, are they, they just got to be like that all the time." And and sometimes they are, but it's it can be a facade, but just to know well, he that was he was quiet. such a good friend. And he always was accessible. He never had anybody mm-hmm. with him. He'd always, he was just out and about every single day as a regular, you know, civilian. <laughs> yeah. he never, his fame never bothered him. It never bothered him. If people stopped him, he was just, uh, in fact, so a couple of times we'd meet for dinner. I'd say, oh, I picked a quiet place. He's like, why? You know? <laughs> and then we'd started going, we would go to Vegas for Labor Day weekend with his, my husband and his wife, and we'd meet out there for the weekend. And they would be very quiet going to play blackjack. And Robin and I were looking for the most crowded crap table so we could go turn into two characters and entertain everybody. Oh, that's uh, so fun. Oh, we had so much fun. Robin used to stay in the mansion behind the MGM. They would give him this mansion that was behind the 
casino, which that was always fun and exciting. But yeah, awesome. Robin and I, we loved the casino. The bigger the crowds, the better. <laughs> you go to you go to Vegas still? I'll go to see certain shows. Um, but I think I, Vegas is just a, such a sad. I mean, I like to go see a show, and I'll I can spend maybe a day there. But it's longer than that is is I don't like seeing people sad that they lost money. Yeah, there's I, a lot I, of that it there. bothers me. Like when I see, I'm like I want to go. No, don't just don't. You, you know, Bonnie, I've always thought the irony of Vegas is that you you pitch a show, they buy the idea, you you write a script, they pick it up, they'll give you the money to shoot it. Then they decide, okay, these are our six shows. They all go to Las Vegas and they give these people who are on the balls of their ass, miserable and broke. They say, you want to make $100 cash, watch this show and judge it. Oh, I know. And they're the most angry people. <laughs> right? And that's how you either get on TV or you don't. I know. I went through that with my talk show. They had a focus group. And I just remember this one woman's like, I've always hated Bonnie Hunt. <laughs> like, she is a no I don't get it. I don't know why she keeps getting opportunity. I'm just watching this woman. So she was one of the first guests I had on my talk show. We found her. I said, come on out. Tell me what's wrong. Wow, that's awesome. Well, because we had the footage of how much she hated me. It was hilarious. Genius. It's a fucking genius. And every time they went back to her on the table, she was like, I don't get it. I mean, what does she have to offer? There's nothing there. You know? Just was so insulting. You thought it was like a plant, but it wasn't. She couldn't stand me. Wow. Yeah. Um, growing up, did your parents talk to you at all about how to handle your emotions and, and you know, dealing with emotions? Because for me growing up, and I was lucky enough to have my dad, like it was talked about all the time. We were we were encouraged to feel things. I was just right. talking to him about how he once yelled at me for not standing up to him and not getting angry with him and feeling wow. and we whenever we cried it was okay and he would cry and I would comfort him and vice versa yeah, yeah. so and I mean I still think a lot of people in my generation still don't have that and I think that's part of why we're here is to encourage that behavior in those conversations um but growing up did you did you have that and you had a family of seven like there had to be so much emotion in that house <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot going on, especially with only two bathrooms. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was more like no matter what you were going through, my dad's kind of thing was like, ah, you'll be all right. Mm. Yeah, you'll be all right. Heartbreak was definitely nurtured, like if you mm -hmm. had a heartbreak or a disappointment. But challenges were just like, uh, you know, whatever it was. You didn't get on this team or that team or whatever, that stuff. But dealing with emotions about stuff that made me question the reality of family life versus the image. Mm -hmm. I was into that driving everybody crazy probably by the time I was seven or eight. Like, you know, I don't think Uncle Wally really has an ear infection because he seems to get one every time he drinks that liquid. <laughs> so it's like, he parked the car that way because he has an inner ear infection. I'm like, what's going on here? You know, there was so much alcoholism that I was just like, well, wait a second. Didn't he fall into the bushes last time we were here? You know, it's like, I was always trying to figure out the two, what I was hearing portrayed and what I was seeing, especially with a couple of my relatives, women that I was, I remember being like nine or 10 years old thinking, she seems so much smarter than him. Why is she worried about what he thinks? Like I remember having those thoughts mm. because they were enablers, you know, they were married to these men that drink and 
you know, I would, I would just watch these brilliant women try to fix everything, spit every plate, keep it all uh, image, 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 image. And it was, it was exhausting. I remember being exhausted by it. And then I remember feeling so much of it, that burden myself, that responsibility of keeping up. That's why when (laughs) my mother always says, I can't believe you never went to acting school. I'm like, are you kidding? (laughs) I mean, every Sunday morning it was like happy family, take one or she'd kill us. You know, <laughs> I knew what to do. There's yeah. no, no doubt. Uh, so, so many families are united by their secrets. Right. You know, we, we build the secrets. Yeah. We, we create we a party them. line mm-hmm. and you better stick by that. That's right. You know, stick by that no matter what, because the worst thing you can do is, is tell the truth. Or that question. would be, how dare you betray anybody with the truth? That's mm-hmm. <laughs> daunting when you're a kid and you know something is different, that there's a different truth. I remember struggling with that. I was like, wait a second. That probably helps with your storytelling, though. It, probably it does. what makes you such a great storyteller and actress and comedian. I asked a nun Definitely once if the apostles were like the Rat Pack. <laughs> we laugh about that. Oh, and those nuns, boy, they had a lot more power over us in the 60s, the 50s, and the 60s than they do today. Oh, um, please. It was awful. Yeah. yeah. That, the, when I was in fifth grade, the nun told me to stand up in the classroom, and I had turned in something late and made up some lame excuse, and she said, Bonnie Hunt, stand up. And I stood up and I'm like, oh no, what's going on? She goes, I've taught every kid in your family. I'm looking at your paper or your homework and your test results and your grades. I'm like, yeah, what's she gonna say? She goes, you are the dumbest one in your family. <laughs> and I, I, I was mortified, but then I was totally relieved. At the same time, I was like, oh, I'm the dumb one. Like, this is great. Like, I remember walking home thinking, I don't really have to do much anymore. I'm an idiot. <laughs> But she made that announcement. You're the dumbest one in your family. Uh, Sister Christina, I've taught all of you. you. You're the dumb one. Yeah, I had my niche. And then it became the family joke. My dad's like, I hope she marries somebody rich. That's how it's going to happen. Or- oh, my God. All right, Bonnie. Thank you so much for this, man. Love you guys. Are you was so fantastic. You were it's yeah. so great to see you. You too. Uh, I love you so much, Joe. You know that, right? Thank you, Bonnie. I love you so much, too. Yeah, the best. Whoa, that was amazing. <laughs> she was great. She was she was so honest and vulnerable, and she told us stories that she hasn't told many times. That story about her father was one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard, and just my heart is still warm from hearing it because it, it really, I mean, it's sad, but it's also uplifting because she helped people because of it, and uh I mean, look, I've known Body for 30 years now, and the stories that she told us just now, I, I, I didn't know about. And the gumption and the tenacity, picking up the phone book and making cold calls to stars that shaped her life. Yeah, that was great. I'm in awe that she just looked up Sid Caesar on the phone and was like, hey, you want to get lunch? And he was like, yeah. And they just became friends. And and that's something that we should all do more of, you know, not in a stalker way, but in a like, <laughs> in a why not? Like push through that fear, that wall and and just go for it. That was her advice. She's like, just go for it. You know, why not? Now it doesn't even, all you have to do is 
find them on Instagram and yeah, DM them. Why not? Guys, people DM me every day asking for money. Well, uh, don't do that. We're not encouraging that. We're encouraging, hey, you're someone your I admire. Oh. <laughs> I highly doubt that. But yes, okay. You can give him money. <laughs> if you're related to the person, yeah, you can ask them for money, I think. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. I hope you liked what you heard. Um, we talked about some emotional dis-ease stuff, but um, we also didn't talk about it. And and that pot, that's kind of what we're going to be doing on this podcast. It's not going to be all about emotional disease. We're going to have some fun stories in here too, because that's what a conversation is. While we want to talk about those serious things, we also want to have fun here. And, and those stories can be very fun to listen to um, and they can also inspire things so reach out to us in the show notes of wherever you listen you'll see the links of how to get a hold of us send us your stories send us how you're feeling send us your suggestions and let us know when we messed something up because we're human and that's why we're here to talk about our mistakes and to fix them we want to do this right and we need your help to do it don't let those mistakes keep you from giving us a five star rating oh no of course not you have i mean we're acknowledging our mistakes we deserve a five-star rating let's be serious also it's going to help you people find the show that's right it's really all about just making it easier for you to find it if you just click that five-star rating and subscribe too and tell your friends thank you tell Danny. all your I, friends I, I love you and i miss you and i uh, i'm glad that we can see each other on zoom uh while we're doing this but i do i do miss you i love you daddy